Good morning. I'm Claudia Shamba, your host of Ask a Leader. It's the t- December 6th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. It's the final day of voting in Georgia for the U.S. Senate. Make sure your people in Georgia turn out and vote. Today, my first guest is Emily Penner at UCI's School of Education, returning to the show to speak to the theme of pedagogy, not politics, of ethnic studies. And in the second segment, Karen Whitaker, Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists, will talk about road safety as we move through the pandemic. Looking at you, exceptional USA, with our scary trend of raised fatalities bucking the global decline. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Emily Penner at UC School of Education, returning to the show to speak to the theme of pedagogy, not politics, of ethnic studies. Her research focuses on educational inequality and policy and considers the ways that policies, districts, schools, teachers, peers, and parents can contribute to or ameliorate educational inequality. She's currently examining teacher recruitment and retention in constrained labor and housing markets, how curriculum placement policies affect student learning, and how state accountability policies might affect school-level supports under the Every Student Succeeds Act. She is a part of the Orange County National Lab of Teaching Ethnic Studies at the high school level, supported by her appointment as a William T. Grant Scholar. She comes to us today while on the road. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Emily Penner. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here with you. Well, good. It's good to have you because you've just, you've been on our minds as the crush of appointing, electing new members of local school boards and listeners heard the Tustin school board member who I interviewed last month. And I promised listeners, we're going to talk about the policy side, the pedagogy side, and not so much the politics, although they do merge at the least notice. So we're going to bring up where we left off with your last interview on these topics. And so I'd like, Emily, again, for listeners, if you could explain how ethnic studies becomes conflated with critical race theory, and that's because It's ethnic studies that's being taught in high school. Maybe it's also getting woven into some of the junior high school curriculum, but how it's getting completed ethnic studies with critical race theory. Sure. Well, so let's back up for a moment and just talk about what ethnic studies is trying to do and what it is. You know, so it's a group of different disciplines. Um, They're interdisciplinary in themselves that try to help center the experiences ancestral knowledges, communal knowledges, and uh, academic work of scholars of color and communities of color, so that students who enroll in such courses have the opportunity to learn about histories of their own communities or of communities of other groups of color that might typically be excluded in what's often a social studies curriculum, but could be in some other disciplinary spaces as well. 
And in the this rose out of protest movements in the 60s on college campuses, but there were some parallel movements happening in secondary spaces to try to get students more opportunities to learn ethnic studies as well. And in some high schools across California, there have been some smaller scale ethnic studies programs, sometimes focusing on a particular group like Afro-American studies, Asian American studies, something like that, and sometimes in a more mixed group space like an ethnic studies class in some places for several decades. And that's not just in California. It's been present in some districts in other states as well. But, you know, a focus of ethnic studies is obviously around thinking about questions about race, about racism, about inequality, about stereotypes, about building solidarity across racial groups, and about challenging some of the structures in society that have really so effectively and for such a long time marginalized many groups of color. And what ends up happening in lots of the public discourse around ethnic studies and around critical race theory is it's because ethnic studies deals so head on with issues about race and about power and about hegemony and other struggles of historically marginalized groups, folks who want to weaponize things like critical race theory will point to anything that has to do with the study of race and racism and structural inequality and call it critical race theory. And that gets some folks really motivated and agitated. And that then in turn makes it harder for students of color and communities of color to have themselves represented in classroom spaces and to give students spaces to process some of their lived experiences. And does gender also bring come into this to some extent at all, Emily, just as it occurs to me to ask? Yeah. Well, yeah, another part of ethnic studies is thinking not just about students' racial and ethnic identities or their national identities or something like that, but it also helps them to think about their identities from lots of different lenses. That's often called taking an intersectional approach. So thinking not just about their racial or ethnic identities, but also their gender identities, their sexual identities perhaps a country of origin or some kind of experience based on the class background of their families, disabilities they might have, and other things that might impact how they move in the world and how they're perceived by others. Which, as we put ourselves in a student's desk in the middle of that classroom, and if we just don't hear ourselves mentioned at all, it's not just the systematic part, the system, but just representation meaning you are a part of the society and your you and yours with whom you identify belong in the history social studies all of the the parts that the ethnic studies can bring up so it's it's, it's recognition period not right. even it's, deconstructing right yeah, it's recognition but also you know in a lot of social studies content sometimes some groups or individuals are portrayed in a pretty harmful or negative light you know not giving any validation to the fact that there are folks who've been community leaders who've pushed back against some of these structures over time and that have also contributed in a really meaningful way to our culture, our society here in California and across the country. So it's not even just seeing folks present in books but also uh, and, and in content, but just seeing that there's actually important contributions that I think often get glossed over. Like, for example, because there is a brand new documentary out about Rosa Parks. I haven't seen it. I, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, but, but that would be a classic sort of explanation of it would be moving her. Not It's not just looking at her on the bus and refusal to leave a seat, but it's looking at what she's been building in that movement for decades before that encounter on the bus. That's ethnic studies. Right. Yeah. And, and then even finding a more local context to get that viewpoint, right? 
Rosa Parks, not that students should certainly learn about her work and the movement that she participated in and that preceded her, but there's great examples coming here from, you know, Orange County, from the LA right. area, from Southern California, that it, you know, it would be really important for students to hear about and to understand the contributions, maybe their parents, their grandparents, someone in their community and their history and their family um, might have participated in that have shaped where we are today. So you think about folks like the Mendez family, right? Correct. Sylvia Mendez. You think about some of the solidarities that were built between her family and the Japanese American family that they helped to support while that family was put into prison camps during the World War II incarceration. And, you know, those are the kinds of stories that I think for students can really not just help to point out the contributions of different communities, but can also help to build solidarities across uh, different groups that may not realize they have had struggles in common before. And the whole, the sundown towns that were right here in Orange County. Another great example. That's right. Yeah, another way to help students understand why it is that communities of color and white communities often live in such separate areas of the county. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Emily Penner. She's UCI Professor of Education Policy and Social Context in the School of Education. We're talking about ethnic studies and generally it's secondary education. So does that capture, you, there are some junior high school courses that would be considered ethnic studies, Emily, or is it only high school? I think that there are some spaces where it's being implemented in a middle school or ways in which students at younger ages are getting some exposure to ethnic studies content, but it's primarily right now a, a high school course. And so when you were talking in the previous interview, it was the summer of last year, 2021, you were making the case that the performance of any student improves not just in their ethnic studies with that provision of that curriculum, but it also improves a student's performance in other disciplines in secondary education. So that's just a very crude sort of summary of what you're talking about. What are Emily, your latest findings about how the curriculum affects outcomes on learning and performing, breaking it down perhaps in different grades, if that's helpful. Oh, sure. Well, so my earlier work focused on evaluating the effects of an ethnic studies program that was being created and piloted in San Francisco Unified. And the way that we studied that was partly to do with the way that they rolled it out in some of the high schools where they were doing the pilot. So students who were entering ninth grade, but were not doing particularly well academically in eighth grade were automatically signed up to take the course. And they had GPAs of less than 2.0 when they made the transition, you know, coming out of eighth grade, making the transition into ninth grade. And so we could compare them to their peers who had GPAs just above 2.0, who were not automatically signed up to take the course and leverage that difference between those two groups of students who were otherwise very similar, but had just missed, you know, a fraction of a letter grade otherwise, based on their middle school performance, and look at outcomes for them in the short term on things like attendance and GPA and credits earned in courses that didn't include ethnic studies or PE. And then in a second study, which we talked about the last time I was on, uh, we followed those same students all the way through the end of high school and into young adulthood, finding consistent evidence that the course had increased the total credits they earned, the, their attendance throughout high school, and the likelihood that they would complete high school and enroll in a post-secondary institution. And, you know, the effects we saw in the very first study were large, very large, and that large impact persisted all the way to the end. 
such that students who'd been automatically nudged to take the course um, were 25 percentage points more likely to graduate high school, something in that realm, in terms of that magnitude. But one thing I wanted to just note based on the year recap was that this was focused on students around that 2.0 grade point threshold. So we have less of a sense for the kinds of impacts it might have on students farther away. But so- before we go to that, though, please hold that thought, because I still want to talk about the ones that you were so-called targeting is there's one other factor I'd like to know if not measured these previous trials were, would it be considered perhaps in later times, whether you could gauge the extent to which the ethnic studies and role you're studying, do they move into leadership positions with organizations, the student organizations? Oh, well, that's a great question. And unfortunately, no, we can't know that about those particular students based off of the transcript records and things like that that we used to study them in that earlier study. But that would be a a dimension that would be a really critical kind of gauge of how they would be thriving in an organizational sense, not in the, you were talking about the attendance, grades, and credits earned, that kind of thing. So, Well, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of other great indicators you might think about in terms of trying to understand the ways that some of the motivation that might have been coming out of ethnic studies experiences translated into some of this greater school attachment and then later academic success. And participation in clubs and school leadership could be one. You might think about something like civic participation in some other way or community engagement. And all of those would be great to think about. Um, that Those were not things that we measured in the first two studies, but they're things we're trying to think about how to measure in some of the work that, that we're in the field conducting right now. And it is a lot. So you were beginning to explain about how those that were not the target, how they performed with the introduction of ethnic studies throughout the high school. Well, so as I was mentioning, that first study was really focused on students who were really near that eighth grade 2.0 GPA threshold. So these are not students who've been doing particularly well so far, pretty academically marginalized students. And it helped them to complete more courses and get more ready to make the leap from high school to complete it and to make the leap to a post-secondary institution. But what we don't have yet is evidence about the impacts on students who are outside of that kind of near the 2.0 threshold range. So we are now continuing our partnership with the district and trying to study what's happening as the program has scaled up so that now there's a wider variety of students who are taking the course. And they're taking it at a larger number of high schools and a a broader distribution from kind of throughout the uh, range of GPAs that students are entering ninth grade with uh, are also taking the course. And they're taking it in other grade levels, too, where we previously focused on students who were taking it in ninth grade because that's a lot of how the pilot was being implemented. Now we're looking at impacts across grades. And that work is still ongoing. So I I can't give you a, a definitive answer yet about the impacts there, but that's something that I hope to get a chance to come back and talk to you about in the future. Um, Excellent. But, but they're great questions that you're asking. And for some of these students, you know, their GPAs can't get higher. <laughs> so we can't see the same magnitude of impacts. So we need to think about other ways that the course might be impacting them, if at all. No, well, maybe that's the leadership, the civic engagement. And you were, I think we did talk about the more, the ethnic studies, there was some projection, maybe that was with a different guest, that they are going to be more involved voters. There, I don't. Was that in your interview, or did I pick up that on some other round? Oh, I'm not sure. It's it's possible that we had talked about that as a possibility. 
I, I do think it's possible, but it's not something that we have concrete evidence about, at least to my knowledge at this point. That's an intersectional point, though, that can be made inside the curriculum and they can, where they have their own discussion. So I'd like to know now that we're all we're still mulling over the midterm election results. There, I mean, there's lots to, to it's, I think, the most phenomenal general election I can remember over many decades, really, because of so many moving parts. But Emily, did you have a, a particular response, your reaction to the leadership, to the elected Orange County school boards. I know that the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District voted in an exceptionally conservative, an ideological uh, composition on that board. And a few more were picked up. I don't know if you had just some impressions now about what that is going to mean for the work ahead and whether you and your colleagues involved with this throughout the study are making yourselves making your data known in different, maybe with parental rooms or with the superintendent of the county or the Orange County Board of Education. What your impressions and where do you think you want to sort of nudge out the data that you are collecting now? Yeah, well, in some of the lead up to the election and in thinking about what's happening at the state level, you know, a reasonable question is, where are we? What What's, you know, taking stock of where ethnic studies is and where it might go from here and how some of the legislative efforts that got signed in around having course availability by the 25-26 school year and a graduation requirement for the class of 29-30. You know, a thing that I've started to look at with some colleagues is just what is on offer and where around the state. And where are the spaces where ethnic studies is growing and what's left to do if this graduation requirement might be met? And, you know, I think that we can get caught up in a space about efforts in particular districts that where folks are considering different interests in opposed to giving students opportunities to learn about their cultures and histories or different lenses through which they might want to do that. But we are also in a space where there's going to be a really dramatic growth in ethnic studies across the state. It may not happen at the same pace in some particular districts, but you can see this rapid development happening in a lot of spaces. So I think the big takeaway is that there is a huge need to pull this off. There's a huge policy lift that's going to have to happen, and schools of education are (laughs) needing to figure out ways to get people prepared to do it. You are. You are. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think every school of education across the state is realizing that they have a role to play here and that there's a lot of districts that are trying to invest and trying to make sure to do this in a way that captures the intent of the program, but also serves its students appropriately. And for some districts, that means building off of the work of some teachers who've been trying to do this for a long time. And in other districts, that means recruiting new folks and training up existing folks to get the skills needed to do this. And so for me, the election with some amount of opposition is really, it's a side issue relative to the scale of the growth and the training and the effort that people are pulling off and trying to get geared up in a lot of other spaces. So maybe a little top down kind of structurally speaking is where ethnic studies is going to be institutionalized. And that may be what's going to save, help build that. I mean, it it is going to be a little bit top down. In a way, but it's also up to every district to figure out how they're going to do it. And that, okay. to me, doesn't feel particularly top-down, actually. Okay, so it's um, both the mandate and then how to make that work from the yeah. bottom up. 
Okay. And it's, it's California after all, right? So that means we let each district make a lot of their own decisions. And that's very different than how some states operate. But we are on the side of letting each district come up with a plan and customize it. And for all the intent that people will try to make about Sacramento dictating things, it's ultimately going to be the folks in each district that end up creating the plan for what ethnic studies will look like. Taking stock of the student populations that are there that are not being reflected in the current curriculum and trying to create something that gives students from those groups, as well as their peers, opportunities to learn about their histories and opportunities to figure out how to become more conversant in having dialogues with one another. And it may be that there's a few districts that are reluctant to do that, but I think there's a lot of other districts that are out there looking for guidance and support. So I guess a piece of the ethnic studies might be how students enrolled in that who are getting very charged intellectually by this, feeling that charge, they may see their role in what you're talking about, the bottom-up kind of arrangement here is they make the case to their boards. They're all ready to be informed and provide this kind of stellar testimony as we want this. This makes us great. Right, exactly. And I think you see that in school board presentations uh, around Orange County and across Definitely. the state. Definitely. Yep. You know? Well, Senti, Yorba Linda, they were doing that. So I wanted to, because yeah. I know we have a lot to, in the short time we have left together. So would you respond to the Cal State Fullerton University withdrawing their student teachers from assignments at the district like the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District and perhaps other districts? Is UCI redirecting student teacher assignments as well? Well, so let me first say that there's a director of our teacher preparation program who would probably be the right person to ask about that. But to my knowledge, no, uh, that's not the direction we're heading you know, I think it's a challenging issue, and I there's probably a lot happening behind the scenes that's not part of the public conversation around this. But, you know, I think we're in a space where there's a need to get lots of teacher candidates prepared to teach content around race, around identity, around racism, and how it's, you know, integrated into our society and the ways that things function. And I think, you know, teacher candidates are in such a formative space. And so finding ways to support them in having those conversations may be challenging in some contexts. And so I assume that there's like a motivation around trying to give teachers experience with particular kinds of teaching that they're feeling like are not available in that context. Wow. Okay. I don't know. You know, that's me speculating because that's not the program that I'm most familiar with. And, you know, a, a teacher preparation program is a It's a fairly short experience, usually 12, 18, 24 months, depending on the program. And it's an intense time. (laughs) So there's a lot that folks have to learn in a short amount of time before they um, become teachers. And so depending on the focus of a particular program, it may be that just that the needs and the priorities don't align anymore with particular partnerships. But my sense is also that different kinds of arrangements between preparation programs and partner districts may, you know, ebb and flow over time. So I don't know if it's just too unrelated, but would the passage of Proposition 28 to include, to require an art and music curriculum in K through 12, is there any connection with that? Is there any additional opportunity with ethnic studies that you'd like to address? Well, I mean, having resources for art, for music, for performing arts, is certainly something that California has shortchanged. <laughs> students on for a long time. So it's 
And I think it's something that many people want more of for their students. I think ethnic studies spaces often do a lot to incorporate art and music, poetry, writing by uh, from marginalized communities, um, racially minoritized communities. And, you know, that's also something that kind of comes out of some of the collective struggle that people participate in in various movements over time. I also think that there may be a space for some ethnic studies programs or courses to exist in a visual and performing arts kind of space. I think that Santa Ana Unified has such a course or is working on designing one, for example. I don't know of that many other districts that have such a course, but I think one could think about incorporating some of the principles of ethnic studies or kind of that sort of focus into some types of performing arts or uh, visual arts, musical arts experiences for students. Okay. Well, good. Well, in closing then, Emily Penner, you want to tell us where your research is going from here, what you want listeners to know, how to follow this, and what to look out for, and maybe even a way to be supportive of how this curriculum is going to be institutionalized with that requirement that would be part of the curriculum by 2930. Well, you know, what I'm trying to learn about in the work that I'm doing now is, first of all, where is ethnic studies being implemented and who's availing themselves of the opportunity? And secondly, how are we preparing teachers to be ready for this? How are we supporting them? And I think that the current political climate makes it hard for teachers to sign on to this assignment. And of course, people who are doing it, many of them are quite passionate about it, but you know, they're doing so even here in California where they have plenty of job protections to do this kind of thing, getting all the political heat around it you know, it means that teachers' jobs are all the harder. And many of these folks are learning some of this content for the first time. They may not get it perfect the first time around. <laughs> and districts are also learning what they need to be doing and how to support people as they're developing these skills. And we want to learn if the process of doing that continues to positively affect students in the same ways that we've seen before or in new ways that we haven't been able to study so far. But, you know, as with every reform or new curriculum that gets adopted, there's a learning curve and there's a rollout period. And this is an unusual context where that learning curve and rollout period is happening with this national political backlash backdrop. And that's a tough thing for teachers, I think, to be implementing, especially after multiple years of COVID. Exactly. Um, I was going to ask about that, whether that's a, a huge wrinkle with either quiet resignation or people just burning out if this is an, a tall order with the, the political climate challenging the teachers that are still I mean, in this mix. Yeah, I think I think this is a tough climate for teachers and school leaders, <laughs> you know, just in general, because of everything that's been happening for the past several years. And so I don't think that we're at the end game in terms of what ethnic studies rollout might look like and the kinds of supports it might provide to students. But, you know, we've also seen from my research, from research of others, that there can be a really big impact for students. And so, you know, we're in this intermediate space where folks are trying to learn how to do it well. And I think some people know how to do that, but I think there's a lot of learning that still needs to be happening. And uh, that means it's a process. It's not an immediate <laughs> realization of something. And, um, that's an uncomfortable space because people want results right away. They want in answers right away. And um, so I think that a space of being supportive is, first of all, putting into place ways that give teachers the time and space they need to cultivate the skills. And then second, being supportive of district leaders 
and other folks who um, are providing them supports so that they can give them the space they need to learn. And then giving all of those folks the space to have enough time to do some research and actually learn about what they're doing and whether or not it's impacting students as they hope. And it's hard to say that what we need is more time and space, but you know, that those I think are important components of the rollout of any new program. And while this program isn't new everywhere, it's quite new in the many places. So I think we will come to learn a lot more in the coming years, but I don't know that we have all of the answers immediately right now either. So I guess I'm at the risk of just stepping on your toes a little bit, maybe for a, a really tight shorthand for, since you brought up what the end game, that the end game isn't that clear, but may I just propose, or may I suggest that the end game here in ethnic studies is to seeing the students thrive, seeing grades increase and their engagement in the society increase, improve. I mean, that's one, that would be a nice end game. But I, I mean, also a, think, an object, objective end game for, for all, all political persuasions. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, of course, every time we implement something, a new education policy, we kind of want to see those outcomes, right? <laughs> and we want to see students thrive. We want to see them invested in school. But I think some of the stuff that we're going to learn is that years later, students who had these conversations with one another are better at getting along with one another, at valuing each other's inputs at welcoming one another into their respective communities and making space for them in the workplace, in the community, in government, wherever it is, you know, down the line. And making space for diverse viewpoints and diverse experiences in each of those kinds of spheres. That's hard to measure. And that's something that is a little bit longer term in terms of what we might see. Indeed. And I think that's the go end game was that they thrive. Thrive means yeah. all of the above. And of so course. Because the message game is putting uh, the onus on everybody to really tighten up the wording so we can blast it out <laughs> in, in yeah. wherever. So I know that you have much to do out in the field there. I really appreciate your taking the time to do this pre-record with me today, Emily Penner. Thanks so much. Sure thing. Thanks so much for having me. My guest was Emily Penner, UCI Professor of Education Policy and Social Context in the School of Education, talking about the status of ethnic studies, building it in the state of California. Stay tuned for Karen Whitaker. She's a deputy executive director of the League of American Bicyclists. We'll be right back after this station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Karen Whitaker, Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists. In her role as Deputy Director, Karen's involved with organizational strategy and leads the League's federal policy efforts to secure bicycle and pedestrian safety policies and funding through advocacy with Congress, the administration, and national advocacy partners. Prior to joining the League of American Bicyclists, Karen served as the campaign director for American Bikes. Before that, she worked for the National Wildlife Federation on smart growth, international policy, and community engagement. 
In addition, Karen served as a community land use planner for the state of North Carolina Division of Coastal Management, providing technical assistance to local governments and staffing a stakeholders council responsible for revising state planning regulations. She earned her Bachelor's of Arts in African Studies and Environmental Studies at Williams College and her Master's in Environmental Management from Duke University's Nicholas School of Environment. She comes to us today from her home in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Karen Whitaker. Thank you for having me. Well, on previous programs on Ask a Leader, we've examined how assumptions in the practice of urban planning have consequences about social justice assumptions when George Floyd was killed, assumptions about how it affects climate change, and actually the most recent urban planning assumptions in housing pricing and availability. Today, we'll explore how those assumptions have lethal outcomes in traffic and transportation infrastructure. So the pandemic stay-in-place orders having emptied many a roadway around the world, did some interesting things. Alongside the global trends and averages, though, the U.S. stood out. How opposite of the expectations was that for you that you realize now, Karen Whitaker? Well, I don't know if it was opposite from what we expected, but what we did see is with less cars on the road, drivers drove faster. And that resulted in more fatal crashes. We actually saw less crashes overall, but more fatal crashes. What we also saw with that is that, for instance, in 2020, the rate per 100 million population, those fatal crashes went up 21% from 2019. So that's a huge jump in a year. And we also saw that 45% of those crashes involved some risky behavior, whether that was speeding or alcohol or someone not wearing a seatbelt. And I think when we're talking about assumptions, there's an interesting thing in the U.S. where most people assume that they're a great driver. There's actually a study by the AAA Foundation that said 88% of Americans think they're above average drivers. And wow. that it's, and so it's like, it's all those other people on the road. So when those other people are gone, you know, people would speed. And part of that also has to do with how our roads are built. There used to be the assumption when you're talking about land use planning that the best way to make that road safe was to make it straight, give people wide lanes so they wouldn't hit anything. And so we were building roads for one speed and then assigning a speed limit separately. And what we really want is for that, the speed you want people to go to be the same speed that you design for. I'd like to add to that. I remember... Andreas Duwani has been offering his design critiques over the years. And some very simple elements to add to what you're talking about, Karen, is that the speed is also an assumption in urban planning design in the U.S. is the speed is maintained by a wide turning radius at an intersection. And so that wide turning radius creates a much longer pedestrian crosswalk. And that Speed is also a factor where if there is no parking on the curb, there will be a deterrent for pedestrians to be using the sidewalk if there's not that buffer of a parked car along the curb. So all these assumptions just keep racing those vehicles along the arterials. Right. The way we've built our roads, 
they've been built with the value of speed in mind and not necessarily with safety in mind. And we're seeing that change a little bit. So what you were talking about having where the crosswalk is super long because the road's meant to make it easier for the driver to turn. But when you change that, whether it's putting in um, a pedestrian island or boxing off the curb, you're slowing down the driver and the cars, and that makes it safer for what we call a vulnerable road users. And I think we've all had that experience of walking on a sidewalk on a road where people are going 50 miles an hour. It doesn't feel safe. Same with biking. You know, I spent some time in Florida. They have a painted bike lane on a road where the speed limit is 50 miles an hour. It doesn't feel safe and it isn't safe. Where if you have that line of cars in between the person walking or the person biking and then the travel cars, you feel safer and you are safer. So, and as I've seen that we're, we're talking about this from the coverage that Emily Badger contributed in the New York Times over a week ago now. And so we're already talking about some of those assumptions. And when people respond to that article, they're bringing up a lot of factors that they understood were not controlled for, but let's break down how it was controlled. You've talked a little bit about the speed and we're talking about the structure and I guess one major assumption about that, I remember back when I was in graduate school in planning, the rational planning method was presumptuously considering all modes of transportation in the transportation element. But the bicycle was completely ignored in that. Had I'm, You've also had graduate training in planning and experience, professional experience in that. I, I don't know if that was also a response that you've had that made it, it sort of condemned bikes to a non-existent choice. Yeah, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg where people say, well, there's no bicyclists on this road, so we don't need to design for them. And it's like I said, if you're biking on a road where people are going 50 miles an hour, you're going to avoid that unless you have to bike there, right? Where if you have a, a complete street, a road that's designed for all users. It could be in that same footprint and you'll get people biking and walking. In Europe, they have a, a planning concept where you plan for the most vulnerable first. So people with disabilities, pedestrians, bicyclists, motorcyclists, and then people within cars. So that's an extraordinary cultural change. We're sort of going all over an outline I prepared. And so I think I'm, I'm just going to address as you bring them up that the cultural factors, the most vulnerable is considered first in European transportation planning, the sector there. We have a sort of a frontier libertarian sort of a mentality going into this. We have sprawl. We have assumptions that there's going to be free parking. So all of that reinforces the vehicle and getting there, getting to those places as fast as we wish. Yeah, that's true. Our system, we measure success based on how many cars get through an intersection per hour. That's how we grade sort of level of service exactly. on the roads. And we're not always looking at where do people live and where do they need to get? And can they get from where they are to where they need to go, whether that be work or school or healthcare or shopping. And so we did see some changes in the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed in 2021. And one of them was a study to give states and communities 
that kind of planning data so they can think about how do people from this community get to where they're going or how do people without a car, how do they get to jobs or to school or to this neighborhood where they're shopping or to this, you know, healthcare hospital area. So we are starting to see those changes, but it is, it's a huge change in our mentality on how we think about transportation. And we've already got so many roads and so much infrastructure in the U.S. that it's difficult to retrofit all of that. Exactly. And Karen, and I, I want to point out in our area where Ask a Leader broadcasts from, we have evidence right now of a massive interstate widening. The people know it here as Interstate 405. And I can't count how many lanes across. There's There's two carpool lanes in each direction, but there must be six or seven lanes in addition to those two in each direction. So we're watching state adopted measure M funds expanding them. There was an elaborate expansion to knock down the overpasses to widen them. So we're, we're seeing that. We saw how a brand new bridge, an iconic bridge, 7th Street in Los Angeles, was replaced by a bridge that was conducive to some very bad <laughs> some very roguish kind of of traffic of car operation so that i mean we these are the newest of the new kinds of projects that we've committed to and there was considering an alternative that was safer and that allowed for more modes of transit so let's talk about well whether we have evidence that the data that was available from the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed into law one year ago. Are we seeing any examples where that can actually be a model for us when we're really committed in the Southern California region to such straight, massive, fast-moving roadways? And one of the things about those lane widening is that we've seen that it takes about five years and then you're back to where you started. Within five years of that lane widening, 90% of that capacity is going to be filled again. And so as far as the infrastructure law goes, we're still just getting started. It takes a long time for new transportation infrastructure to get built. And so we're beginning to see that. But one of the other things in that program, when you're talking about, you know, we've been talking about widening highways, there's also some effort to fight those widenings. And we're seeing it through a couple of ways. One in Texas, we're seeing a fight using civil rights law by saying that by widening that highway, you're going to hurt a historic Black community. And we're also seeing there's funding in the bill, too, in places where those roads have already been built. It was something we did all over the country between basically 1960 to 1990, where we would build highways through low-income communities, through communities of color, and destroy those communities. There's now funding to reconnect communities. So that could be removing a highway. It could be capping that highway and rebuilding those connections, be they biking and walking connections to the community. So we're seeing part of that. In Colorado, they passed a law to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so now we're seeing metropolitan areas across the state have to look at what projects they're building And how can they reduce emissions? So that's making them rethink all of these widenings. 
And to the point about how they've bifurcated communities, we've seen in Seattle, those byways in the inner city have been taken out in San Francisco. I don't think, I think Atlanta still has that glaring problem of, that, of how those interstates contribute to that bifurcating communities. But I wanted to ask, because you're quoted in that New York Times article about there's a lack of political will. So you're showing us, giving us examples of how in Texas and in Colorado, there's some political will to rethink these massive byways, these large freeway systems. So are there more examples of political will that we can see as examples? You know, there are around the country, I would say Massachusetts as a state has a goal of getting 30% of their transportation trips by a method other than a single occupancy car. So that could be transit, it could be biking, it could be walking. But I will say I am cherry picking some examples Overall, and at the federal level, we really do need more political will. What we saw Congress do in this last bill was, yes, they did a lot of things that are better for biking and walking, but they also did a ton of things that are going to encourage just building more highways. And we really need the political will to say, you know what, we're not going to design for speed anymore. We're going to design for safety. So one of the things that we see across the country is that local governments don't have the power to lower their own speed limits. Or the state law is so implausible that maybe they have the ability to do it, but the steps they need to take to do it make it impossible. And so one of the things that we've been pushing for is for states to allow local governments like Seattle has done this, or Washington state has done this, where Seattle can now lower its speed limit from an average of 30 to 25. And now I think they're looking to go lower. So that's oh, and one other thing, along with that plan, that sort of leadership is the commitment from the Seattle King County metropolitan area, the commitment to bringing transit to every single constituents within fifteen minutes of anyone's walking distance or something. there's it's it's all backed up by a whole infrastructure model, yeah, when we look at there's so many goals we talk about today, uh, safety being one of them racial and social equity being another, climate being a third, all of these things are going to require a change in our transportation and some serious changes. And we're seeing some places start to grapple with that. You mentioned Seattle, you mentioned Colorado. But I think that those issues are really going to push us to think about things on the human level. You know, how does this person get from where they are to where they need to go? And how can they do it safely? When we're looking at, you know, low-income communities and difficulty holding on to jobs, in many cases, that has to do with transportation, that they just don't have reliable transportation. So it's really transportation connects all of these things. And the good news on that is that we know how to make things safer for people biking and walking. We know how to make transit more accessible, right? And we know that if we do these things, it will help with safety, it will help with climate, and it will help with equity. We just have to agree to do it. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Karen Whitaker. She's Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists, talking today about road safety and how the U.S. stacks up against other countries since this pandemic began in 
March, the spring of 2020. Well, speaking of COVID though, Karen, I, it seems that when we talk, you and I here, we sign on to the appeal to human vulnerability and safety overall. I'm concerned. It seems that the COVID's lethality of over a million, like a million and nine, 90,000 fatalities, that it's inured the public to people succumbing to unnecessary deaths. So do you think that's a, that's a, a sort of an indicator of people's priorities? You know, there's one thing that we've seen in the transportation world is people ask, so what is an acceptable level of death in transportation? You know, what would we accept? And we in general do, as a society, believe there is an acceptable level, right? Because we allow it to happen. But when you ask individuals that, and then you say, okay, can it, what if it's someone from your family? What if it's someone that you love? And then they get that, that no, there's not an acceptable level. A number of cities around the country have adopted what are called vision zero policies. And that's the idea that there is no acceptable level of traffic death. And so again, we, we've seen that come out of the U.S. Department of Transportation for the first time over the last couple of years. We've seen a commitment to Vision Zero. We've seen a commitment to a program they call Safe Streets for All. So how do we plan and then build projects that are going to improve safety for people biking, walking, people taking transit, and drivers? Um, so we do need to change that philosophy of that fatalities happen because they don't have to happen. Well, and there with those features that you're talking about safety in cities that that just brings a much more human factor, a much more civilized feel of a community. I mean, that's that's the the positive externality of that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the when you think about a community what we call a walkable community, we would call a bikeable community. People are attracted to that, right? When we go on vacation, we want to go places where we can walk around. And so I, I do think that makes it, that helps build community, having people the eyes on the street. It makes areas safer. It makes them more enjoyable. And it helps us get to know our neighbors and feel like we live in a community, not just in a house in a city. So are you able, when you're working with audiences, not just bicycling advocates, but general audiences and legislators, what do you see grabs their attention? So I think it depends on the community. We've been talking a lot about safety. And I think at the federal level, legislators see that as their responsibility. They're directing the federal transportation money. They see that safety needs to be a priority. I think at the community level, people are looking at quality of life issues. Sometimes they're looking at tourism issues. And sometimes they're thinking about just the general transportation issues. If there isn't that free parking, you know, if people are taking transit, how do they get from the bus stop to home? How do they get from the end of that rail line to their office? And so that's when you start talking about biking and walking pieces there. We also used to talk about it with millennials, but I believe it's true also with Generation Z, is that there's a move now to live where you want to live and then find a job. Now, COVID has made that a little bit easier as well, because for a lot of jobs, you can live anywhere. But where people want to live, and we see this a lot, particularly with young people, is they want to live somewhere where they don't have to have a car. And so that also becomes very attractive to decision makers at that local level.
So there are those hopeful new social factors that can perhaps redirect the trend of more lethal traffic. And there's another factor too, that the body of the truck itself could be designed differently to reduce vehicular and pedestrian and bicycle deaths. Could you talk about how those models could be changed and how much, what would the actual cost be to make those improvements? Yeah, so that's something we had a recent high profile fatality here in the Washington, D.C. area. In fact, the State Department has lost three foreign service agents in traffic violence over the last year. And that's more foreign service agents than they've lost in country around the world. And this high profile, it was a woman, she had just moved back from Ukraine. She was coming back from her kid's school from an open house in school. Her name is Sarah Lincoln Kemp. And she was hit by a truck driver in a DC suburb. And, you know, one of the problems we have with trucks is that because there's so much room underneath the trailer that it becomes a vacuum, it can suck you under. And there's an easy solution, which is to put what we call a side under ride guard on the side of those trucks. And so that can be some metal bars coming down, blocking that area. So that if you, uh, as a bicyclist, if a truck passes you and you feel that suction, you would basically bounce off of it. You might still crash, you might still be injured, but you'd be alive. We also know that's the same thing with drivers. When they get hit by a truck or hit a truck, if you have something there that can stop the car from going under the truck, you can save a lot of lives. And so that is one of the things that we're looking at this year. So the infrastructure bill passed in 2021. It's something, these changes to cars, making better technology on cars, that's something that the USDOT could do now on its own. And so we're pushing them for safer truck design. We're also looking at automated vehicles and how those can be safer for people walking. And just generally, things like automatic emergency braking. Right now, there's no standards for automated emergency braking and how they interact with pedestrians. The USDOT plans to work on that. The Department of Transportation is planning on working with that. But they have no plans to look at automatic emergency braking with bicyclists until after 2025. And that's something that Europe's already doing, that Australia's already doing, that Japan's already doing. So we're actually behind the rest of the world when it comes to vehicle safety. So we spend a lot of time focusing on better infrastructure, whether it's bicyclists and pedestrian protected infrastructure, and we absolutely want that. But we also need to make sure that our vehicles are safe and safe for the people outside of the vehicles, not just the people inside. Well, thank you for all that. And this could be done strictly in the executive branch, or does it need congressional enabling for those two very clear safety measures with the trucks model? They have all of the enabling from Congress that they need. We just need USDOT to take action. Okay, so there's a transition. We can imagine that would be a lobbying effort that you would bring into what I would like you to mention what you will be planning for in the next year's National Bike Summit. So that would be one of the advocacy. So tell us how people can attend when it will be taking place the National Bike Summit next year. And I know that there's also remote attendance options too. So tell us what we need to know about that summit, Karen. Sure. The National Bike Summit will take place March 26th through 29th 
you can come in person to Washington, D.C., or there is a virtual option as well. And it's a really great time. This will be our 24th annual summit. We've been doing it for a while. You can learn a lot about different topics, whether you're into teaching bicycle education, whether you're into the road design like we've talked about here, or vehicle safety. All of those things will be on there, as well as how to throw a bike party or something fun like that. So we have the conference. And then on the last day, we go up to Capitol Hill and we meet with senators and representatives and their staff and lobby for better bike infrastructure and for safer trucks and safer cars. And you can learn more about it on our website, bikeleague.org, and just look for National Bike Summit. There's a virtual option. There's an in-person option. And we'd love to have you be part of it. Well, thank you for all that, Karen. I'm so glad we could cover all of these areas. The bicyclist and urban planning are near and dear to me, as my listeners must know by now. So thank you for your time today, Karen. Thank you. My guest was Karen Whitaker. She's the Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists, talking today about road safety and how it stacks up against other countries. The continuation of this interview will be available on my website, askaleader.com. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, my guest will be the HD Care Crew that's featuring Dr. Leslie Thompson about Huntington's disease, the progress in both care and research we'll talk about. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.